tell you a story about something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was at, uh, I was at JG Bean Coffee just down the road, and I, uh, I left and I, went, I was going back to my car. Uh, white Hyundai Accent, that's what I drive. And so I stuck the key uh, in the door, and it, it stuck a little bit. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't super smooth. And I was like, well, that's a bit weird, but sometimes it does this. It's, a, it's got a lot of idiosyncrasies, this car. So I put a little bit of, of force into it. The door, the door opens. I sit down in the driver's seat, and I realize this is not my car. I have, I have accidentally broken into someone else's car, <laughs> someone else's white Hyundai accent. <laughs> and right away as I get out of the car and I, I, go, I go to my car, which is two spots over and they're like little cars, right? So there's a car in between, it's kind of hiding it. So I go, I go into my car and then I see this woman walking towards me looking really suspicious. She's looking at her car, the other white Hyundai accent, and looking at me, and she's really sketched out. And so I, I could have driven away at that point, but I decided I would, I'd try to put her at ease. So I get out, and I say, hey, craziest thing. I also have a Hyundai accent. This is my key. Apparently, it opens up other Hyundai accents. Isn't that crazy? And she, is not, she does not think this is crazy. She's still like, I think this guy's a criminal. And so I thought... I would put her at ease, and I don't know why I thought this would help, but I said, apparently, you don't know who could break into your car, so you got to watch out, you know? And that, that didn't go over well either. So, so then I just got into my car, and then I drove away, and I saw her talking to the guy in the car in between us, trying to figure out what had happened, and she's probably wanted posters of me at Dollar Village there. If you see that, that's why. Um, also, I really hope that there's no car thieves listening to this right now, because apparently... It's tremendously easy to break into a, a Hyundai accent. So anyways, this, maybe I just wanted to tell you that story because I drove away. I was like, that's the craziest thing that just happened. But, and, and so maybe I'm just stretching this, but I think there's something there about the human condition. I think, um, how many of us can relate to getting into a situation where you go, how did this happen? How, how did I get into this? This is, not, this is not my car. How did this happen? Not like literally, but metaphorically, you know? And I think this is like, this is the human condition overall, that we have collectively broken into a bondage to sin that we weren't created for. That God actually made us in his image to reflect his character, and yet we have, we have kind of, through our sinful actions, broken into a kind of life, into a kind of enslavement that actually isn't, wasn't ours at the beginning, but that we've kind of gone into. That's what we do. But what God does is he breaks us out. And what God does is, is he opens our eyes and he looses the chains and he opens the door and he invites us to follow him out. We, we break into these kinds of situations, into this condition. God breaks us out. He's the God of the breakout. And, and that's what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 12. So last year from like September to April, we were in the book of Acts. We got through 11 chapters of it. And if you thought, oh, we're done with that, we're not. We're going to keep going. We're, we're, gonna, we're just going to go through Acts because I, I love this book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, it tells the story of the early church and all that God did in and through the early church. And as we said oftentimes last year, these are not just stories of what happened 2,000 years ago. Although they did happen, right? They, these, these stories are not myths. These actually did happen. But the reason that, we, that we, we read them and we reflect on them is because they also shape our vision for what God wants to do now, for what God can do now. Because the truth is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that his character is unchanging. And so what we see him doing and, and what we see of his character then is true of his character now. God was the God of the breakout then. He's the God of the breakout now. And so let's, uh, let's pray and then get into Acts chapter 12. So Lord, we ask today, especially for any who have come and they are needing, uh, they are needing deliverance from, from something uh, or, or they're close to somebody who needs that deliverance, needs that freedom that we were singing about. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak to us today in those, in those situations. I, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and, and loose the chains and open our eyes, Lord, as you did so many years ago and you continue to do today. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We long to know you more today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, little, um, 
special treat this morning. Uh, I'd encourage you to, invite, to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, but I am not going to read it. Instead, as we've done sometimes in the past, I've got two little actors, actor and actress, to do it for us with a special cameo voice acting appearance from my own mother. So here we go. Acts 12, 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. <laughs> this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Oh. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she said, was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's, Peter's here! Peter's here! You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought them out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers. Peter <laughs> <laughs> had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered there it is, Acts 12. <laughs> so what we're going to do today is, is we're going to walk through the story again, uh, bit by bit. And we're, we're going to look at aspects of, of God's deliverance, because that's what this story is really all about. And like I, I kind of alluded to before, I know that some of you might be in situations where you are needing liberation. You're needing, you're needing freedom from some kind of situation, something that is holding you captive. And, and others of you are walking with people. You're praying for people who are in that same kind of situation. And, and maybe some of you are wrestling with questions about why God worked in the past or didn't work in certain ways. And, and I believe that, that God's word has something to speak into all of those kinds of questions this morning. First thing 
we look at in, in verse 1 is we read about King Herod's intentions. We read about this, this power, this, this worldly kind of power and what he wants to do. Now, there are a few Herods in the New Testament, so let's just clear that up uh, to begin with. Who is this guy? Um, Herod the Great was the king who ruled during the time of Jesus' birth. He was the bloodthirsty Herod who ordered that all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem be killed because a possible future king had been born there. Uh, we also read about another Herod in the Gospels. That's Herod Antipas. Uh, that's one of Herod the Great's sons. He's the bloodthirsty Herod who wants John the Baptist's head given to him on a, on a silver platter. And this is yet a different Herod now that we're reading about. This is Herod the Great, one of his grandsons. His full name was Herod Agrippa. And he's the bloodthirsty Herod who is throwing followers of Jesus into prison and having some of them executed. So... Don't name your child Herod. If you do, I'm going to have to have a talk with you. Not a good track record here at all. But this is yet a different Herod. And what he wants to do is he, he's wanting to, uh, to, to take some of the leaders of the church and throw them into prison. And he's done this uh, previously, and he's realized this gets him a lot of favor with the Jewish people. He's like that classroom pest who just bugs other kids so much and then sees that it gets a reaction and goes, yeah, I'm going to do more of this. That's part of the equation for Herod. He goes, oh, people like this. I'm going to do more. But he also genuinely views Christian faith as a theological threat. And he, he wants to stamp it out. And so we read that his intention is to persecute the church, to pursue it, to, to kind of quash this, this movement, to stamp it down. He intends to, uh, to kill some of these uh, leaders of, of the church. And, and this is often true of the powers that be in the world, that their intention, there are exceptions, of course, there have been long stretches of exceptions in history, but the intentions of powers, whether human or supernatural evil forces, is to undermine the church. They're, they're not looking for the welfare of followers of Jesus. That's why, and this might come as a surprise to you, but statistically speaking, Christians are the most persecuted group of people in the world, globally speaking. It's why you see persecution ramping up in places like, like China. It's why we don't, even, we don't see overt persecution of the same way, but still you can kind of see it in Canada in, in, in kind of lower key kinds of ways. So I, I can't stand CBC News, but I read it every single day anyways. And... Um, Sometimes the stories they, they feature, you go, what is, what's going on here? So there was a story of, of uh, an, exorcism, an attempted exorcism at a Bible camp in Saskatchewan this past summer. And, and it, from what I have read, from what I've understood, it was a misguided uh, exorcism. Uh, nobody died or anything like that, but it seems to have traumatized some kids and, and probably was dealing with seizures that should have been medically treated rather than, than an exorcism. Now, CBC News ran this story day after day after day. In fact, a month and a half after it happened, CBC News was featuring it as the top story on their homepage with the headline of, criminal charges should be brought against these people. They're, they're plastering the, the face of the guy who's kind of doing this, this young, young adult guy. And it was just like, what is, like surely this is not the most consequential thing that is happening in Canada at the moment. A month and a half later, surely there are other things happening in the world. And yet CBC News goes, no, this is what we really want to feature. This is what we really want to get at. You just go, what, what's, what's going on here? You know, what, what are the intentions of some of these powers, some of these rulers, some of these authorities that exist in our world. And I, I don't mean to like kind of foster, I don't want to foster like some persecution complex where we see persecution everywhere. And I, I don't want us to feel all anxious and fearful or anything like that. I just, I want to say like we shouldn't be surprised. I've said this often. We shouldn't be surprised if this happens. We should expect it. Jesus told us, as I quoted last week, that because the world hated him, the world will probably hate us too sometimes. We should just kind of go, okay, this is probably going to happen. But not to grow fearful or anxious because God himself is not fearful or anxious about it. Because here's what he does. He sees the intentions of these forces, of these powers in the world, and he subverts those intentions. He turns them upside down. This is what we were singing about before. What the enemy meant for evil, he means for good. I was just reading this past week in uh, the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, 
uh, is recalling, this is an Old Testament book, he's recalling an earlier event in the Old Testament where the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness and uh, an enemy king hired a prophet-type figure named Balaam to come and to cast curses on the Israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness. But Nehemiah says, our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. This was the intention of that king. God turned it upside down and he turned that attempted curse into a blessing. This is what our God does. Whatever the intentions may be of rulers and authorities, God is able to do something different with them. Now, now what, what does that actually look like? That moves us to verse 2, where we find that, that Herod is actually a repeat offender. It's not the first time he's going after one of the leaders of the church. In fact, we read a little bit earlier, he had James uh, arrested and killed by the sword. Now, just like with Herod's, there's a few James. So let's be clear on, on which this guy is too. Two main Jameses in the, in the New Testament. One is one of the inner circle of disciples of Jesus. That's this guy, brother of John, James, John, and Peter. They were kind of the three that especially stayed close with Jesus. He's the one who gets martyred. There's another James who is the half-brother of Jesus, wasn't a disciple during Jesus' life, but after the resurrection seems to have trusted in him and become ultimately the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So this James is the, is the, is the disciple who had walked with Jesus. So he's, he's been killed. Now the question that I ask, maybe you do too, is why, why does Peter get delivered out of his imprisonment, but James is killed? Why does God deliver the one and not the other? And you could apply that to so many different situations, including ones in your own life. Why, why did God heal that person, but not my child or my parents or whatever? Why, why, why did I get fired from my job, but that person over there who does a far worse job than me gets to keep his or hers? Why, why in this car accident did that life get, get, get taken, but the drunk driver goes off without a scratch? It seems random sometimes, doesn't it? Why, why here and, and not there? Where is God in all of this? And I don't have a neat answer for you. I do know, and we can say, that there is, of course, evil in the world, both human and supernatural, and that this evil seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, the Bible says. We also know that life is fleeting in this world. No matter what, death is inevitable. Um, like none of us are, are going to escape it. And, and yet that there is also eternity afterwards. And, and so what really matters, and I know this isn't easy for those who have undergone tragedy, but what really matters is not, is not at what age someone died or even the nature of their death, but rather the life they lived before their death. That's, that's what ultimately matters. Because here's the thing that those, those powers that be in our world want to do. They don't want to just take life. They want to twist and corrupt hearts. They want to destroy relationships. They want to undermine particularly relationship between humans and God. That's the ultimate intention, is, is not, just to, not just to inflict pain and suffering, but ultimately to corrupt and twist and, and separate and divide and that kind of thing. And that's especially where we see God undermining the intentions of the powers. Sometimes he delivers from prison like he did with Peter. But I believe that always for those who seek the Lord, he is able to undermine those intentions to divide, and to cause unfaithfulness, to cause apostasy. See, if you turn to the Lord in those moments, he will deliver you from bitterness. He will deliver you from fear of death. He will deliver you from bondage to sin. This is what he does for those who seek him. Now, how do you seek him? Well, prayer, of course, is a really big part of this. And that's what we see in verse 5. That the church, that the believers in Jerusalem are gathered together and they are praying for Peter. And we read in verse 12 that they are gathered together, particularly in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, uh, and that they're praying in the middle of the night. A few things about this that we see. One is, again, that they're praying together. 
Uh, we often, I think, in modern Western culture, we see spiritual practices like prayer. We see them primarily, I think, as an individual sport. This is something that I do with God. This is like, it's like, a, it's like tennis, right? Like me and God just hitting shots back and forward. It's actually probably not a good analogy because that would mean God is our like opponent. But you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it's like this, it's an individual sport. Whereas I think for the early church, it was a lot more like a team sport. It's something that you do together with other people. It doesn't mean that they didn't pray on their own or, or read scripture or worship, but, but a lot of it was, was you do it together in community. So, so you're praying together, you're worshiping together often, frequently, uh, to, a, to a degree that we simply, I, I don't think, are familiar with in our culture. And I would say that's to their benefit and to our detriment. So they're praying together, and not just when it's convenient, not just at set times. I love that we set aside, set aside a time every week for prayer as a church. Mondays at noon or Tuesdays when the queen has a funeral. Um, we uh, we set, set time aside to pray together as a church. That's awesome. I love that. But I think for the early church, if, if there were scheduled times, there was also flexibility to pray at all kinds of times. Here, they're praying in the middle of the night, right? Like, like the, the, the guards are sleeping, Peter's sleeping, it's in the middle of the night, and yet they are still praying together. They're praying together, not just when it's convenient, but at any hour it requires, and they're praying for somebody else. I don't know if this is significant or not, but Peter's sleeping, right? Like he's not, he's not staying up all night praying for his deliverance from prison. He's sleeping, but the church is gathered together. They're not even going to get anything out of this necessarily, but their prayer is motivated by, by love, by authentic concern for somebody else. So it's prayer that's together at any time necessary, prayer fired by love, and here's the big thing, that it is fervent prayer. It's earnest prayer. Now, uh, Luke who's the author of the book of Acts, uses this word only on a couple of other occasions. It's actually only used one time in the Gospels. I'll read the quote for you. You're going to tell me where this is from. And so don't, don't put it on the slide yet. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Who's that about? You tell me. This is like the easiest answer ever. Sunday school answer. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, it's about Jesus. And where, where does that happen? The Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, he's facing his death. He knows that his death is right around the corner. And, and he is overwhelmed with this because this is like the most important death in the history of the world. It's the death that's going to, he's going to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. It's the death that, that brings about reconciliation between God and humans. And so he's facing this death and he doesn't want to die this death. This is his prayer. We read in Luke 22, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus faces his death, He's weakened by the thought of it. It's terrifying. The weight of that. And so it's prayer. Fervent, earnest, heart-wrenching, soul-rending, thirsty, desperate prayer that ends up empowering him, enabling him to go forward. And when, when Luke looks at the prayer of the church in Acts 12, when he looks at what happened there, the quality of it, he goes, that's the closest parallel I can think of. That's what that prayer was like. It was like the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, this wasn't like, um, hey guys, we're going we're gonna to eat a meal here in a few moments, but why don't we just say a word for Peter who's probably going to be executed tomorrow. Hey, let's just kind of say a prayer for him. Like, <laughs> This is so much more than this, that. This is like, this is prayer that keeps you up at night with other believers because you're so desperate to see God intervene. Have you prayed in this way before? Have you prayed like this with other people? For other people? I could say, I could, I could think of like sometimes where my, my prayers have been especially impassioned, but it's been, it's been rare like we read here this kind of description, but I want more of that. I want my heart 
I want my heart to be so soft towards God that when I pray, that I have God's heart, heart for a situation, you know? Like, I want my heart to break for the things that breaks God's heart. I, I want to I have the, the same kind of passion that Jesus had. I don't want to just kind of have this, like, polite, flowery, like, prayer that's like, hey, God, if you could help out a little bit, that would be great. Okay, moving on. Like, I, I want to have that I want to have that yearning in me to see God do something. And I want more of that with you. I want more of that in community. And I, again, I love that we are a church that is committed to prayer. I mean, some of you were, uh, were praying in the middle of the night this past week, right? 24-7 prayer. I love that. Um, I, you know, I just, it's so exciting for me. I'm a little bit neurotic with it because I, I open it up like every half hour. I'm like, who filled in the slots? Are they filled up? Who's going? Who's going? Oh, Ruth is doing four hours. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> no, I was like, I'm always checking like, okay, is it, is it good? But, but really, it's so exciting for me to see how so many people sign up and what they're praying for, you know, what, what, what we're yearning for as a church. And, and I love that we set aside time for prayer. I love that on Thursday night we had this worshipful time upstairs for those who came. But what would happen if, if our prayer, or the quality of our prayer together as a church became more like the believers in Acts 12? You know, that kind of fervency and earnestness. And I wonder... I mean, I wonder what God would do. I wonder what kind of deliverance we would see him accomplishing in and through us if we, if we prayed like this. And another thing that's striking about this, this prayer is going on to in the, kind of the next point is the timing of it. We read in verse 6 that this was happening the night before Peter was going to be brought to trial and almost surely executed. So, so God could have God could have delivered Peter a lot earlier, right? Like way back, maybe he could have sent an angel to Peter and said, hey, 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 Peter, there's going to be soldiers. They're going to come and arrest you. You should get out of town now. That, that could happen. God does that at other times. And yet he waits till the last night, kind of the last possible time, the 11th hour before he does it. And, and seemingly in response to the impassioned prayers of, of God's people. And what strikes me here is, is just how the church hasn't given up yet at this point. You know, you might think, well, God clearly doesn't intend on doing something. It's too late. And yet they keep going. In, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this parable about uh, an, a widow who has had wrong done to her. And, and she is trying to get justice. And she is, she is hassling this judge who really doesn't care. He's apathetic. He's corrupt. And yet she keeps on bugging him over and over and over again until he finally goes, fine, stop bothering me. I'll do what you ask. Just leave me alone. And Jesus says, look, if that's what it's like with a corrupt earthly judge, then how much more will God, who actually loves his children and cares about justice, actually come to the rescue of, of his people and, and bring them justice. And Luke adds this little editorial note to the beginning of that parable where he says, Jesus told them this parable so that they would always keep on praying and not give up. If you're like me, you've, you've had these situations where you've been praying for someone or for something for a long time and you just get weary. And you just go, I don't think God's going to do anything here. He hasn't done anything yet. I just, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think what we need to learn from this is that you just, you don't stop. You don't give up. You keep asking because you don't know God's timing. You don't know what he intends to do. So keep persisting in prayer. So the church is, is praying fervently, even at the last hour. Peter's sleeping, the guards are sleeping, and God breaks in. Breaks into the prison. This angel Shows up, you heard my sound effects earlier, right? Oh, this is light and everything. And, and, th and then the angel strikes Peter on the side. And here's the thing you've got to know about that word, that word in, in the Greek. It's also, it's a violent word, just like the sound of a water bottle falling onto stairs. That was perfect timing, whoever did that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, it's a violent word. It's an aggressive word. It's a word that's used other times. For example, when, you know that story where uh, Jesus is being arrested in the garden and Peter lops off the ear of one of the servants uh, who's there? That, that word there is the same. He, Peter strikes the ear off this guy. 
Um, and so here, what, what the angel does is not just kind of like gently nudge Peter. Hey, Peter, hey, psst. it's time to wake up. We gotta go. We gotta go. He's like, bam, get up. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's like this like startling thing. But here's, here's what's especially interesting about it. That Luke also uses this word later on. In, uh, in Acts 12. Again, it's a very, a very rare word, but he uses it again later on in Acts 12 when you get this other story about King Herod. Uh, Herod has people praising him and going, oh, it's the voice of a God. And Herod just is like, yeah, that's right. That's who I am. And, and we read that an angel strikes him down and kills him because of it. Same word. So both Peter and Herod are struck by an angel. One of them gives glory to God and is set free by the strike. The other one receives glory for himself and dies from the strike. I take from that that, that God, God is not a tame God. He's not afraid of sometimes shocking our senses, of even striking us. But the result of that varies greatly depending on our heart, on our posture, towards God. I don't know if this is like a perfect analogy or not, but um, I read a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia books to our kids this past summer. So my head is full of these, these stories. And they're so good. There's so many illustrations in there. But one of my favorite scenes is in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And how many of you have read? How many of you have read it? Yeah, some of you. So there's this boy named Eustace. Eustace is a brat. He's the worst. He's the absolute worst. I love giving Eustace just the whiniest, brattiest, brattiest? I don't know if that's a word. Brattiest voice I, I could. So Eustace is just this like the worst kid. And they, they end up, they're on this voyage and they land on an uninhabited island or so it seems. Eustace stumbles upon a dragon's lair. And he himself kind of has this dragonish heart. And he loves the treasure that he sees. He's kind of, he's, he lusts after it. And, and so at night, he sleeps in the dragon's lair and he actually turns into a literal physical dragon. Um, there's some magic on the island that causes that. And this, this predicament, this situation, ends up spurring some, some degree of repentance in him. He goes, oh, I've been really terrible. This is who I am. I see it now. And so he wants to change. He wants to be a different boy. Uh, soon after that, he comes across Aslan the great lion, a clear uh, Jesus figure in those, in those books. And Aslan tells him to undress, to get the dragon skin off. And, uh, and Eustace, is, is the dragon, is, is trying to claw these, these layers of skin off. And one layer after the next peels off, but he's still a dragon. And so Aslan says, I'm going to have to do it. He, he takes his claws, his huge claws, and he just plunges them right into Eustace, his, his dragon skin at least, and he rips the dragon skin off. And Eustace says, like, this hurts more than anything ever. But it's ultimately what sets him free. It's, it's what gives him back his, his boyhood, and, and not just as a boy, but, but now a, a new creation. It's, and, then, and then Aslan, ch Aslan chucks him into a well. It's like this whole baptism scene. But, but it's this, it's, it hurts, right? It hurts terribly when Aslan digs his claws in and, and rips it off, and yet it's that that sets him free. See, God never promised us that life would be easy without bumps, without strikes, and, and when we read the Bible, we see that sometimes those, those strikes are, are actually from God himself. But again, what comes of that depends on our heart. If your heart's posture is towards the Lord, if you're humble towards him, if you're, if you're, if you're seeking him, that's exactly what will set you free, what will break the chains. If your heart is hard towards him, it may destroy you. Depends on your heart. And you see that that heart that the heart that we have towards God is manifest in our response, uh, which is what we see next. So, so the angel um, kind of speaks to Peter, and, and a bunch of things start happening. And when I, when I read this, it kind of hit me that a lot, of the, a lot of the aspects of the actual breakout from prison are things that Peter never could have done on his own, right? Like the, the chains just fall off his wrists, and we never read about Peter having like Hulk-level strength to snap them off, right? They just kind of fall off. They're walking through and gates are just opening for them. Again, no record of Peter being trained by Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
becoming a Jedi Knight, just swooshing doors open with his fingers. The guards are just sleeping the whole time. It's not like Peter has to fight them off and overcome them, like Shang-Chi or anything like that. And uh, it's not like Peter has to have the, the, the blueprint of the prison tattooed on his body, like, uh, like in Prison Break. Four media references in one point. Boom! He doesn't need any of that because it's all God, right? God does these things that he could never do on his own. And yet, there are things that Peter needs to do. The angel tells him, put on the sandals, put on your cloak. Peter has to do that. Angel says, follow me. Peter has to actually, you know, get up, walk, follow the angel. And maybe you go, well, that's not very much. That's not a, that's not a big deal. But you can imagine a situation where somebody might say, I am kind of afraid that those guards aren't going to stay sleeping and things are going to end very badly for me if I follow you. You know, you could see how fear would actually keep you in the prison. Or you could just kind of doubt it. You could be like, I don't think this is real at all, which is kind of what Peter thinks. Or you could just be like, I think this is all a dream. This is like Inception or last movie reference, I promise. It's like Inception or something. You could see that, right? You could see how fear or doubt or something else could actually keep somebody in the cell because they're just kind of paralyzed by it. This is going ahead just a little bit, but you know, when, when we think about Jesus and the ultimate deliverance that comes through him, the reality is that a lot of people hear that Jesus has set them free, but they don't actually get up out of the cell. I mean, his, his death, I believe, is sufficient to cover over all sin. That anyone who trusts in him can be set free and can, can walk out and yet so many hear the good news and they either doubt it, they say, oh, that can't possibly be true, or, uh, or there's fear. I don't know what's out there. I don't know what will happen if I actually get up and walk and follow him. And so I'm just going to stay in my cell, which I'm comfortable with and which I know. You see, to actually live into the deliverance that God brings about in our lives, you actually do need to respond. He alone can do it, but you need to respond in obedience. You actually need to get up and obey and do the things that he calls you to do. A couple more points. When we come to this whole comedic kind of scene where uh, Peter shows up at the door of John Mark's mother's house, and he's knocking on the door, and the servant girl, girl Rhoda hears his voice, recognizes it, but doesn't open the door for him. And so she just goes upstairs, and you just imagine Peter, like, sitting out the door, like, being, like, twiddling his thumbs, like, I really hope there's not a Roman soldier just going for a stroll right now, just out here in the cold. And meanwhile, Rhoda's having the worst time trying to convince everybody that Peter's actually at the door. They're like, no, 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 it's just his angel. And we're all like, what does that mean? Uh, we're not quite sure. There's evidence of Jewish belief in the first century of, like, a kind of, like, a personal guardian angel uh, that, that God maybe assigns to believers. It's not a lot to go on there, but there's, there's evidence of that. But in any case, when you're reading this, you're just like, guys, there's a really easy way to find out if it's Peter or not. You could just open the door. Somebody just open the door and find out. But here's, here's the bigger, the more serious question for me. They seem so surprised and astounded. They have a really difficult time believing that Peter's actually at the door. But you kind of go, isn't that what they're praying for? Right? Like, isn't it, you, you kind of assume that's what, they're, that's what they're fervently praying for all night, right? They're probably praying for Peter's deliverance, and then it happens, and they're like, what? What's going on here? And it reminds me a little bit of something that happens in John 11, where uh, Lazarus, one of the friends of Jesus, dies. And Jesus goes a few days later after Lazarus has died and he shows up and Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, comes to him and she tells him, Lord, if you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died, but I believe that God will do anything you ask. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I assume that Martha is thinking you could raise him from the dead even now, right? That's what I think Martha is implying, that Jesus, you have power even over death, right? That's her faith. And yet, a few verses later, Jesus says the stone in front of the tomb should be removed. And Martha's going, no, it's going to smell bad. <laughs> That's your concern? <laughs> like, don't, don't you believe? Isn't that what you were kind of implying before? And yet she's so shocked that Jesus would want to have the stone removed. 
See, there's something, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't, I don't think this is like the Bible's contradicting itself. I think human nature is contradictory. I think we ask for things, but we don't actually believe that God's going to do it. Or sometimes we ask for something and, and God does something totally different than we were anticipating and we're like so taken aback by it. Or maybe, and I, I don't know for sure, but maybe the reason, and I think it probably is something to that first thing, that we have a hard time believing the things that, even, that we even pray for. James says something about that. You ask, but you don't actually trust, you know, and that's why you don't receive. So there's something maybe to that. But, but I wonder also if, if the reason they were surprised was because they weren't actually praying for Peter's deliverance. Maybe they were simply but earnestly praying for God's will to be done. I don't know, maybe they were praying the same kind of prayer that Jesus prayed in, in the garden where they are wrestling with God in prayer for what they want to see, but ultimately just saying, God, whatever you want to do, do it. And that maybe when Peter showed up, this was actually above and beyond what they had imagined, what they thought God might do. Because this is what God does, right? We read in Ephesians that, that he does um, above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. And this is who he is. We might ask for things. We might want things. We might yearn for things. But he goes, I've actually got something even better in store for you. One more point. Final thing. Kind of bring it back. To that. That's kind of the nature of God's deliverance. But there's one, more, there's one more kind of theme running throughout this that I want to bring up. Uh, in verse 3, we read that this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And uh, I think whenever we read the Bible, you kind of want to ask, why did the author write this? Why did he include this detail? Now, the, the uh, Festival of Unleavened Bread, you know what another name for that is? Passover. Nice job. Uh, yeah, it's, the Passover is the other name for it. Does anybody remember when Jesus was arrested? Passover. So Luke here is, is, seems to be drawing out a bit of a parallel, right? He's saying, look, this happened at the same time as when Jesus was, was arrested. Also, interestingly, Luke alone of the gospel writers includes this little note that Herod was part of the whole sham trial and crucifixion of Jesus. A different Herod, but still a Herod was involved. None of the other gospels mention that, but you've got a Herod who's involved in this. And, and then you look later on in the, in the passage, in verses 15 to 17 especially, you've got the initial report of a woman. Rhoda, who the other disciples disbelieve. They're like, no way, that's not true. They're hiding behind locked doors because they think that they're next, probably. And then when, when their leader, their beloved leader appears, they think it's just an apparition. Right here, they think that, no, Peter's just, it's just his angel or something like that. It's some kind of supernatural apparition kind of thing. Well, think about the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples are hiding behind locked doors some women come and say, we've seen him, and they don't believe them. They don't believe those, those women. And then when Jesus actually does appear to them, what do they think he is? And he's a ghost. He's an apparition. Now, I think things happen the way they, they, it's written here, but I also think Luke is highlighting, maybe implicitly, some connections, some parallels to, to Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, why does he do that? What's the point? I can think of two things, two reasons. And this would be, this would be a great, I, like I, I would almost love to just kind of break, you know, have you break out uh, into smaller groups, but the kids are getting restless upstairs, so we got to go. Uh, two, two reasons that I can think of. One is, is that it reminds us that, that our lives as followers of Jesus are to imitate his life, imitate the life of Jesus, that his, that his life, his, his death and his resurrection uh, provide the script for our own lives. We talked about this a little bit last week. Paul in Galatians 2 says that I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have died. I have participated in his crucifixion. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our 
mortal body. That's packed. I know it might go, whoa, way over. But the point is, Peter or, or Paul is saying, look, we are embodying the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are to die a death to ourselves, take up the cross. We are to live a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That script is what is to be true of our lives. We're following in line with Jesus. And so Peter, the things that are happening to him are kind of like the things that happened to Jesus and they're kind of like the things that are to happen to us in life too. So that's one thing. Our lives are to imitate Jesus. The second reason I think that, that Luke draws this parallel is is because every deliverance, every smaller deliverance from sickness or imprisonment or some adversary who seems to be set on destroying us and, and undermining us and, and every deliverance from, from the bondage of sin or whatever, every deliverance is in the end a pointer, a sign of the ultimate deliverance that has come in Jesus. And even the mention of Passover, the, the festival of unleavened bread, is, is a reminder of that. Because Passover, when God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, this was like the big epic moment in the Old Testament about God's salvation. But in the end, it was, it was, it was a deliverance from a political power. It was, it was a deliverance from human adversaries. And in the end, it points, it points towards, it foreshadows the deliverance of Jesus at the cross. That Jesus delivers us not from, not just from earthly political powers, he delivers us from death, from the fear of it. Gives us the hope of eternal life. He delivers us from the, 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 the enslavement to sin. He, he puts a new heart in us. He delivers us from our estrangement from God by reconciling us. He does this incredible thing on the biggest scale possible. And so every other deliverance is a pointer to that, a sign of that. It's kind of like with healing too. We talked about this, how sometimes God miraculously heals, sometimes he doesn't. But the point of those miraculous healings is not to extend life forever in this body. It's always just a delay of death. The point of a miracle is to point to the ultimate healing that comes in Christ Jesus. And so every deliverance Every way, small or big, that God brings about freedom in our lives, every way that he subverts the intentions of the powers in the world, in the end is just a sign of that ultimate deliverance of Jesus at the cross. And so this morning, get the worship team to come on up here. But this morning, wherever you're at, if you're, if you're in that place of Going, yeah, I, I, I'm in prison in some way. There are circumstances around me. There are people um, that are, are set against me. They're trying to undermine me. There are forces at work in the world that I simply can't overcome. And you are longing for this. There are people perhaps in your life. And you see it in their life and you're longing for freedom, for liberation for them. Reflect again on this. Reflect again on, on the way that, that when we seek him, when our hearts are right towards him, and we seek him with all our heart, that this is who he is. He, he turns those intentions of the powers in the world upside down. He, he fills us with his hope, with his peace. He delivers us. He sets us free. This is who he is. This is what he does. And so just for a few moments here, before we, before we sing, I just want to invite you in this, in this space to, to pray, to, to offer uh, your requests to God, whether it's for yourself or for somebody else. Let's just spend a few moments just asking the Lord to, to bring about his deliverance. Pray with fervency, with earnestness. Pray without ceasing, without giving up. I promise you, he will come through. He will do it. Maybe not in the way that you think or expect, but he will do it. He's the same God he was back then.
God, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers for deliverance. Set us free, Lord. Set your church free from bondage to, um, to needing to please the world, to accommodating to the world. Free your church, Lord, from, from sin, from unholiness. Set your church free from, from fear of persecution, fear of opposition. Set your church free, Lord. Deliver us. Deliver us that we could walk in the freedom of the Holy Spirit again. We pray, Lord, that you would set those around us in our communities, in our country, set them free, Lord, from the, from the doubt and the cynicism that so dominates us. Set them free, Lord, from the fear as well that keeps people held in bondage, although you have given them salvation. And set us free, Lord. Anything that keeps us from living into the fullness of what you have called us to, set us free, Lord, we pray. Those in our families, our friends, Lord, who are living in captivity in one way or another, set us free in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus, in you there is freedom. You have power to break the chains. You have power to take what the enemy meant for evil and to turn it for good. You have power, Lord Jesus, to overcome death itself. You have done it, you will do it again. And we pray that you would do it now in our lives. We praise you and we love you, Lord Jesus. And we sing praises to you. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make Him known. We believe He is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know more of Him and make Him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.